CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are talking about the Mueller report uh, on the podcast. Probably not too surprising. We're still only a few days, I guess well, it's five or six days, depending yeah. on how you count days, right. um, from, from when it was released. And uh, we're still in that period where there are sort of like the ways that a, a tidal wave comes on shore. There's, there's, there's an initial impact, and then there's subsequent kind of radiations of, of, of impact as people um, go past the top lines and start seeing, you know, smaller little parts of it and, and putting pieces together and people start to uh, comment and try to, uh, you know, kind of provide a, it, yeah. yeah, create a narrative and, and, and stuff like that. So today we're uh, with my co-host David Tainter hey. and, and Josh Kovensky. Hi. So... Hey Josh, welcome back. So David, what are what are we what 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 are we doing today? As you mentioned, we're just a few days out from the release of the report, which has been the culmination of two years of investigative work and lots of thorough and intense reporting. So I just wanted to kind of get everyone's sense of what we've learned, what our listeners you know might have missed in some of the, I guess, just kind of sweeping coverage of it all, and uh, and then kind of talk about what's next. What does Congress do now? Uh, we've got some hearings coming up and just sort of wanted to look at kind of what are some of the next steps. Right. Okay. Well, before let's keep our priorities straight. Before we do that, we're going to talk a little about Grady's cold brew iced coffee. Uh, Want to become a true office hero? Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42 serving bag and box. You know, it really, it, we should say, because this is what we get, right? It is. Yeah. It, it should just... You should just say box. <laughs> just a box. Because the box, you don't see the bag. That's true. Unless yeah. you kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's. Until you get to the very end and you need to wring all of the iced coffee. Well, from you know, the... I'll tell you, I had this thing at, I had this thing at, we had this thing at home where, you know, Grady's uh, needs to be, uh, you know, you put it in the refrigerator, right? right. And uh, my family and I were on vacation. And so we had, and it was, long story, it was left out. So mm -hmm. this Grady's couldn't be used. Mm -hmm. And so. I, you know, I didn't really want to throw it away because, you know, we live in a building and kind of like people who get the, you know, whatever. So I figured, all right, I'm going to empty it, right? So I take the bag out and um, and I figure, all right, I'm going to cut it. And man, it's like, it's like you see in the movies, you're slaughtering a calf <laughs> or something like this because the coffee pours oh, out. Man. And it's seriously, man, I thought I was, I, 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 I felt like... Uh, I was having these like ancestral memories from one like you know uh, kosher slaughtering or something like that. <laughs> Pretty gr anyway, sounds gruesome. Yeah. Anyway, we're kind of a bit off the uh, uh, off the ad copy here, but anyway, let's let's get back to it. Uh, yeah, hero, blah blah blah, iced coffee, yada yada yada. Bag in the forty two serving bag and box from Grady's Cold Brew, which is again we drink it here. I, I drink it at home. Is totally addicted to it. Now shipping to twenty states on the East Coast. This 
coffee concentrate pours from a spigot just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans style flavor, freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. And like I said, if you have some Grady's, if you wanted to waste a bunch of money... Um, or if you just, I don't know why, but it's true. If you have the Grady's box of iced coffee and you just want to have kind of like a carry experience, right? You, 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 you open the box, you, 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 you kind of reveal the bag, you get a knife, you (laughs) slice open the bag and it's seriously, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, Slaughtering a farm. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Okay. Uh, All right. So the other thing I'm supposed to talk about here is memberships to TPM. The way we pay for everything here at TPM is through memberships. Becoming a member means you get extra stories that we write. You get fewer ads. You get to post on our special member forum, The Hive. You get a bunch of other good stuff, but it also means you support our journalism. And and that includes this podcast. This podcast right. does it not come just out of nowhere, right. right? You got all the uh, you know fancy microphones here and, and the fact that that we're all getting salaries and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, you're supporting this podcast. And, man, we, we, we need your support. We really do. Uh, we have a special offer for podcast listeners, only podcast listeners. Like, we actually have a way, if you haven't, if you try to do this and you are not a podcast listener, we will show up and arrest you. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, but that's it's the way the, it works. Yeah, it's, but it's seriously, it's, it's just for... Um, podcast listeners, you get 20% off a TPM Prime membership. Uh, And again, in all seriousness, becoming a member of TPM is how you support this podcast. That's where where the resources uh, come from from for this podcast. So to get that offer, go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. That's talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. And there you get uh, 20% off a Prime membership. So it's really great. Uh, da, 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 one more. Oh, one more thing. This is, you know, this is, I feel like we are becoming like a total, a really legit podcast because the legit podcasts they have like the first half of the podcast right. is like a lot of, hus- a lot of housekeeping and like oh yeah we're gonna be in Milwaukee that's right. <laughs> at like Joe's Comedy Center yep. and something like that. so not not exactly that but we have the equivalent of that for listeners in the DC area we have an event coming up focused on a subject that you will care a lot about that's congressional oversight and investigations in the Trump era but in order to attend the event and and actually uh, uh, in order to uh, even buy a ticket, you got to be a member. So take advantage of that 20% off discount at talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal, and you can join us. And again, just, just for planning purposes, that is May 9th, in the evening of May 9th in Washington, D.C. Uh, get a lot of the uh, the TPM team. We're going to have a couple members of Congress, like, giving their perspectives. So it's going to be really, really cool. Kind of evening event, food, uh, op- open bar. Um, so, yeah, and it'll it'll really be a good time. So if you are a uh, an inside, TPM Inside member, uh, the ticket is free. If you are a Prime member, you can purchase a ticket. So check it out. Okay, so uh, yeah, sounds great. That is all of the legit stuff at the beginning. So I guess we're now going to dig yeah. into the Mueller report. So Josh Marshall, I wanted to start with you. I mean, you've obviously written so much over the last couple of years about the Mueller investigation, all the reporting surrounding 
Trump's contacts with Russia. If you had to, I mean, just to put you on the spot, if you had to tell someone who doesn't follow the news kind of one thing about this report that you learned or, you know, st- stuck out to you from the Mueller report, what would that be? What's what's one of your top lines from it? I think the overall top line is that there was all sorts of back-channel communication, uh, offers of assistance, welcomings of assistance, uh, what I think is reasonably called collusion in a, in a pretty big way. Uh, but according to the investigators, they could not find evidence that would really merit charges. You know, kind of uh, that, that part we basically know. Uh, so a lot of collusion, not enough evidence for uh, conspiracy charges. And then shitloads of obstruction. <laughs> I think that that there's really no getting around. I mean, you read through it, and I think if you, you know, one one of the challenges I think, and this is I see this even in emails into a TPM at, at, at our talk email address, is that inevitably most people have not read the report. You know, <laughs> I haven't even read every single right. line of the of the report yet. Four hundred some pages. Yeah, I mean, I you know, on day one, I kind of I, I rifled through it and and looked at all the kind of the key points, and and since then, I've been going through really methodically and reading every word, reading the footnotes, kind of comparing it up with notes and stuff. In any case, even for very knowledgeable. Uh, people, very active citizens, news junkies and stuff, you're inevitably kind of going by the glosses of sort of official voices. Right. Um, to some, you know, for some people, that's Bill Barr. For many other people, it's various, you know, news organizations and so forth. Um, but I think if you if you read the if you read the volume two closely, Mueller basically says departmental guidelines forbid me from charging the president or even from accusing the president. And and we right. can get into because whether Because there's that... no sort of venue for, for Trump to defend himself. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of show you what the evidence is. And the evidence is like r- unbelievably, I mean, almost comically damning. You have certain things like where he has that conversation with uh, Don McGahn, where they're talking about the earlier case of obstruction. Like the thing that he told McGahn to do. And then he says, don't tell the investigators what I told you to do the earlier time when I told you to obstruct justice. Now, telling someone to lie to an investigator is, that's just on its face obstruction. If you if if your intent is clear, if the lies are material, in this case, they both are. Um, so that was my sense on that front. I will say this, though. As I have been reading through part one, again, part one is collusion, part two is obstruction. There's a lot there. And there's a lot, uh, there's frankly a lot more there than I thought. I, I thought we would basically just get a more fleshed out version of the main stories that we that we knew. But actually, th- there's these other people keep coming up like you're in the middle of this, you know, this storyline that like we knew about. And then it says, then like, you know, uh, Vladimir Bulgakov showed up and he also said he's kind of tight with the Russian government and he'd like to help. You know, these these people are coming out of the woodwork. Now, in fairness, um, you know, offers are not the same as, as, as collaboration, but 
I, I do think that, again, there's just a lot more there than I, than I thought there would be. Um, certainly after Barr's letter. Now, I didn't take Barr's letter at face value, certainly, but I did assume that basically Mueller came up short on being able to charge anybody. Um, so, and, and then the other, so there's a lot more there than I thought. And then the other point is, and I'm curious what you, what you have to say about this, Josh, that there are a lot of cases where they're pursuing some thread, you know, one of these stories. They, the Mueller team. You right. In, in their narrative and so forth. And, you know, they're, they're, they're going along and they don't get down to it and said, you know, we looked at this and it turned out it wasn't really what it seemed. In a lot of cases, it turned out like, okay, there was this, this, that, and the other, but then everybody said they forgot. Right. <laughs> and that was the end of it. So there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff there that I don't think was settled or put to rest. I think that people made claims that were not readily refutable. Um, I mean, one example of that is um, with the Papadopoulos stuff. He is told that that uh, the Russians have these secret emails that they're going to release to kind of, you know, to, to damage Hillary. He's telling... Uh, but diplomat from Australia, he's telling the Greek foreign minister, he's talking to the Trump people all the time, and somehow he never mentions this. Now, in fairness, he they, they did have access to a lot of the emails. I find that I, I find that at least questionable whether they never, you know, whether he really never never talked about it. And then there there are just other cases where, um, you know. The stuff with Roger Stone. Did he never tell Trump? Well, Trump seemed to know something was happening. So there's just there's just lots of yeah. stuff. And yeah, didn't one other thing? Sorry, Josh K. I'll let you jump in in just one sec. Didn't wasn't there another episode that just came up again today, which was Jared Kushner's meeting with the state, the Russia state-owned bank uh, at Trump Tower? This was what December 2016. He says, "Oh, we wasn't talking about business. It was just." Uh, you know, an unusual time. We were an unusual campaign. I mean, even just today, he Jared Kushner was at the Time 100 summit talking about this. And Mueller, in the report, basically came to the conclusion we couldn't really square the differences between the two sides of that that meeting. Yeah, and one interesting thing is the way Mueller concluded that section wasn't that, you know, Jared said, you know, stop contacting me. What he concluded was that uh, Jared's assistant decided it was a bad idea and stopped forwarding the messages from the Russian bankers to Jared. So, right, it, so you have another case of, of, of someone else being a little, little, having a little better judgment than Jared, right, basically. Right, exactly, yeah. Now, is that an assistant that is a, a sort of a low-level person or someone who a little more exp- – like, I'm curious because yeah. that is a – you know, that's a bold – like, if, if, if someone wasn't forwarding something for me, I'd be a little – like, I didn't tell you to do that. But that's a that's a bold move. I mean, a wise move, move, but a bold move. In the text of the report, they say that the assistant, I mean, had on his mind that it would be a bad idea, basically for political reasons, because of like the that the fact the investigation was heating up to forward these messages onto Kushner, and so he just decided not to. Right. Right. Did you get the same impression that I did that there were a lot of cases in the report where, like here here's an example. There's you know you have that thing with. Michael Cohen, where he gets confused about how I think it's Volkov, 
that one guy is, whether he's a wrestler or whether oh, right. he's... Klokov, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, he's confused. That's very like, funny. Yeah. But like a lot of people are coming to him and saying, hey, we want to help. Right. We, the Russian government, want to help. Um, in two cases, it came through Ivanka. It was yeah, uh, this like yeah. fashion blogger who was, you know, ferrying an invitation from a Russian official so Trump could go to Russia, and also Klokov, the former like right. Kremlin and, guy. And yeah. he's basically seems to be saying like, you know, uh, someone I want to put you together with, and hinting right. it's 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 Putin basically. Um, now, as I read the report, they couldn't they they did not find something specific about. Trump quite knew all of this, but like, come on, like it, 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 it kind of sort of strained credulity that that wouldn't come through. Right. And I mean, the way they structure the report is interesting and I think nicely sets it up because they divide up the, at least Russian side of everything into, you know, this hacking campaign by Russian military intelligence to steal emails from Hillary Clinton's and the Democratic Party uh, accounts. And then also the uh, social media interference by the Internet Research Agency. And what's interesting is that if you then read the rest of the you know, collusion section, uh, the different contexts can kind of fit nicely into one side or the other. So, for example, with the context of, with Roger Stone and WikiLeaks, that's very much a question of like Russian military intelligence and were they somehow interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And you look at the redactions and you can kind of tell that they just didn't make a determination on whether or not, um, you know, the day before, like the day the Access Hollywood tape was uh, released, you know, did Trump tell Roger Stone to call somebody to get the uh, WikiLeaks to start releasing the, the information. Mm-hmm. You can tell they investigated that, and you can tell that even through the redactions that they didn't come to a conclusion. Right. By the same token, on the uh, Internet Research Agency social media interference, like disinformation campaign stuff, I mean, there's this whole section where they are trying to get Paul Manafort to tell the truth. They find out some stuff about that he you know gave more information than we knew before to Kotsin Kilimnik. He was giving him campaign polling data for months. He was giving mm-hmm. him regular briefings on the campaign. But they say that uh, not only was it because of his per- his lying during after the cooperation agreement, but also because uh, he his practice was to use encrypted apps and his practice was to tell Gates to delete the uh, messages to Kilimnik about the uh, campaign data every day that he sent them. So, they, 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 so basically they weren't able to recover it. And they say at right. the end of the section, like, look, we just don't know what happened right. to this information and whether or not it was used. Now, another, but another part of the report, and I can't remember exactly kind of where this fits into the different subsections of, of volume one, that Trump threw out is basically right. through various means telling Manafort, don't cooperate. I'll have your back. Don't cooperate. So <laughs> this this part of me, th- this part of the report to me was, uh, to put it mildly, a little frustrating because they make pretty clear they think Manafort is the sort of the key axle to this whole thing. Or if there is a whole thing, he's the, he's at the center of right. it. Um, they basically say we couldn't get him to crack. We couldn't get him to tell the truth. And we were also watching as the president told him not to tell the truth and that he would protect him if he didn't tell the truth. Um, So that, you know, and I guess Kalimnik now is saying, come on, man, this is just like, you know, kind of 538 polling data, stuff (laughs) like that. Um, And, you know, who who knows? But it you, you read this and it sounds like, well, they covered it up. Pretty successfully, and 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 Mueller gave up. And I, I guess here, here's the thing: I, I've I've, and I'm curious if you've heard anybody else say anything about this, Josh. 
they did kind of seem to get to the point where they said, okay, we tried to break Manafort. He made a deal, but then he just kept lying. So we're done. Like, he's just not. We can never believe anything he says. Um, maybe that's just the only choice you have, but kind of, that's... It's odd. Yeah. I, I kind don't know of, where you go from there, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and maybe, I mean, again, you can't... Uh, I guess at some at some... At some level, I get the point where you just say, this guy is a liar. So even if he tells the truth now, we have no way of knowing he's telling the truth. But it does seem like a little... You know, one interesting point also is that so during some of the filings during his breach of plea agreement, they mentioned at some point that they weren't able to gain access to all of his uh, electronic accounts. Right. And that came up again in the report is that he was using encrypted communications. And it wasn't just so much that he deleted the information. It was that he didn't give them the passwords. And so they, I, I, as far as I can tell from my read of the report, they still haven't been able to get into that information to access it. Interesting. Okay. I didn't quite, yeah, th- that part I was a little unclear about. It wasn't clear to me whether the stuff is just gone or he just right. wouldn't share the passwords. And I mean, again, like, it, you know, it, I think at a certain level we need to guard against, you know, our own wishful thinking right. just because not all the, not all the evidence was uncovered doesn't mean the evidence is of a massive conspiracy. Um, but Paul Manafort, at least for the moment has paid a big price yeah. for keeping the, what is the total like seven or eight years or what? Yeah, I think he just reported to federal prison today, too, right? He did. Okay, so he's like almost seventy, or I guess he's seventy years old. That's that is a big, big prison sentence. Um, It just it it really does, um, and and this isn't a matter of like blaming the investigators, but it reads a little less like all right, they looked it all over and it was shady, but it wasn't criminal. Where it's more a little more like they looked at a lot of it. Except the really hardcore stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know. It was more like that than I thought. Right. It's, yeah, I mean, I think the narrative of the report definitely leads you to these two points where they get to WikiLeaks and they just kind of can't figure out what happened. And part of that goes to the fact that Jerome Corsi was sort of a fulcrum in that aspect of it. And he's obviously an incredibly unreliable narrator. Did you read that post piece? The Washington Post story, what, yeah. Okay, what did you make of that? Because it was hard for me to know whether he is just... um like throwing up sands or something. Yeah, like, whether yeah. he is, whether he, exactly, whether he kind of made himself an unreliable narrator to not only keep things hidden, but kind of protect himself, or whether he is maybe a little, you know, a little aged and maybe part of why he's such a great conspiracy theory is not totally in touch with reality. <laughs> I had a hard, I, right. you know, what do we- you make of that? It's so weird to me that they... So supposedly filed this draft indictment or these draft plea agreements, and they and then they didn't pull the trigger after he leaked them. It's it's so strange. Yeah, and it, I mean that comes out in the report where there are these huge redacted sections, which suggests that there's still an active ongoing investigation into him. Because um, I think it says harm. I think they're under harmed ongoing matter. That that part is really, it, it like like it's a little hard for me to imagine that he that that is all kind of a con like I'm going to go in there and change my story and kind of give the sense that maybe I'm a little senile or not even in not even in in uh, understand the difference between truth and 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 just making stuff up but this gets to another part about the report that um I found confusing but also in some ways uh, 
confirm my sense of, of, of respect for, for, for Mueller. One of, the big re- one of the big critiques of the old independent counsel law is that when you appoint someone to do an investigation of one person and it's very public in the nature of things, they're not going to be helping you. They may not do what Trump did, but they're not going to be helping you, right? You get a little obsessed, and you develop kind of like Ahab-like tendencies about it. And a lot of these independent counsels just never gave up. They were going to you know, keep on until they found something. Because at some level, you don't want to be a failure, even though it's not, a fail- it's not really a failure. And probably you just get mad, right? The kind of, you know, maybe, maybe it's not like Trump was doing where he's attacking you on Twitter. But still, friends of the person you're... you're, you're um, you're investigating aren't happy. And the Washington Post story suggested they got frustrated at that late stage in the investigation. So, but this is, but this is the thing though, that, that there are, there's just certainly from the nineties, there's lots of examples where independent, uh, special counsels just found something to prosecute on, even if it was really nothing to do with the investigation and really pretty thin, Charges, And in this case, there were numerous cases. I mean, it, they had already drawn up this thing. They thought Corsi had lied to them. They didn't, they, they didn't um, indict him for that. And I'm a little skeptical whether that's really still being investigated because to the extent that it would, it, seemed, it would seem to bear pretty directly on, on the findings of the, of, of the report. Um, and then you have other cases with like... Don Jr., where they seem to have a pretty, you know, a pretty straightforward thing they could charge him with. And they just kind of decided, well, intent and he didn't talk to us. So whatever. And again, I, I, it is one of, it is restraint is one of the great virtues of prosecutors. So I, I, I credit that that not, you know, getting obsessed, you know, kind of losing perspective. But it, but on the merits in the individual cases, it does seem a little strange. You know, Kushner's lawyer made the same point like a month ago. Uh, he was speaking at some event in D.C. And they asked him, like, you know, what do you think about Mueller's sort of approach to declinations? And he was like, well, I think it's the best we've seen of any of the special counsels in the past, you know, since Watergate, basically. Right. I mean, he would. Yeah, I mean, he <laughs> have like, a lot of reason to yeah, be happy about that. Of, yeah. I mean, but th- see, that that's an example, though, that in any of those uh, in any of those 90s special counsel uh, investigations, man, someone like Kushner would have ended up doing like 800 right. years in prison <laughs> just because of all the things where when you do. um you know, make false declarations, that's a crime. Now, it's obviously usually they let you correct and they kind of, it's often assumed it was unintentional, but it is not necessarily uh, just okay. And there is a pattern, though. I mean, the cases where they brought either false statements charges or in Manafort's case where they just prosecuted him, I mean, it's clear that it was done as part of a you know a broader strategy, right? It was either because you know Papadopoulos's case they hindered their ability to effectively question Joseph Mifsud, the Maltese professor, or with Manafort. I mean, he was clearly putting pressure on him to try and get him to testify and provide information to them about what happened during the campaign. So, I mean, I, I, you never get the impression that they were somehow just kind of willy nilly going about like filing charges against people. It was always in furtherance of some other aim in the investigation. Right, right. And but in these cases, you have. Um I mean, it's hard to say who, who you know, Don Jr. is going to uh, 
you know, turn on. I doubt he's going to turn on his dad. And also, these are, I, I guess, you know, these are basically campaign finance violations, which are not like hard time for someone with no criminal record. Uh, and as we've seen, I, I've frankly been kind of surprised at how little time you can get for lying to federal investigators, which is basically supposed to be, it's, I guess, technically not the same crime, but it's basically uh, treated the same way as perjury is, that you can kind of like, well, I never perjured before, so <laughs> can we just let this, let this one go? Yeah, yeah. let this yeah. one go, which is, I, I keep, what do you, what do you make of, of where Papadopoulos is now? I mean, he's out there, like, you know, kind of the full truth is going to come out. He's cashing in, basically. He's yeah. cashing in, yeah. Do you have a book coming out or something? He does have a book yeah, coming out. Okay. And there was a documentary series made about his whole ordeal, right? Yeah. What's, you know, when we're, he's also running for Congress, supposedly, in, like, Southern, <laughs> Southern California, which, like, I think he said he was, like, venue shopping. But... Right. And is, so that's <laughs> happening now? Uh, I don't think it's moved since he yeah, announced, okay. like, his he's, he's still post- interest. He's still posting about it, I think, on social media. But, um... One interesting thing that came out of the report on him was that he was briefly, I guess, under investigation for, uh, and this was reported before, but I've forgotten about it, that he was under investigation for acting as an unregistered foreign agent of Israel. Yeah. And a lot of his whole grift now is revolving around this idea that, like... Obama's against Israel. Yeah. And, yeah, this, and that, yeah. Was, that was his real crime, was, like, right. somehow right. representing Israeli interests. Right. Like. Well, I know that I, I, I have some sources that uh, long thought that that was his real deal, that he was actually not just like an unregistered foreign Asian, but actually in some more sinister way working for Israel. And that that was, it was presented to me that his shadiness and weirdness may not have been more than we basically know about the stuff with Russia, is that he also had this stuff with Greece and Israel and was trying to kind of throw up sand about that. Let me ask you this, though, Josh. It, it, it did seem to me, and maybe this is just that I, I, had, I haven't been sort of you know, deep enough in the Papadopoulos arcana in, in a while, but it seemed there, too, there was a lot more ongoing back and forth with Mifsud and, and yeah. these two Russians who he was talking to and stuff. It, like, it, 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 was, uh, it just seemed like there was more there, more ongoing... It does, and it, Stuff. it kind of goes to this issue, I think. There's this, and one way of reading the report that's interesting, I think, is you can look at the top-level connections, you know, people like Manafort or Roger Stone, who, you know, were in these kind of shady dealings, supposedly, with people who might or may not have been connected to the Russian government. But then you also have this other aspect of it, where it's people coming kind of from the bottom who are essentially opportunists or hangers-on, mm-hmm. and right. are, like, seeing this, like, Russian interference campaign almost as, like, an opportunity to, like, increase their value within the campaign. Right. And you have that with Papadopoulos, and you have that with Carter Page. Right. So, right. you know, you see these emails, like, in the report where... Papadopoulos is like emailing the campaign saying like, you know, I'm going to set up an email, like a meeting with Vladimir Putin. And I think like Sam Clovis at one point responds and he's like, great. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> he's right. Like, like, okay. Like, well, yeah. there's also that interesting, that interesting, uh, Manafort response where he takes, he takes Papadopoulos off the email chain right. and says, someone's got to make clear this is not happening. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that that has, that is, uh, that is often presented as, you know, exculpatory for Manafort. But the thing is with Manafort, Manafort's not an idiot. No. He may be a complete sleazebag, but he's not an idiot. And one of the things in this report that I, I keep keeps coming up to me through through the narrative is that this idea that he's going to go during the heat of the campaign, during the final months of the campaign, that Trump is going to go to Russia 
and have a and have a business meeting with Putin, right. where he where he well, like finalizes his hotel is so insane. It yeah. is that insane, it's, but I think it goes to like a lot of the people at least involved in the Trump Moscow deal, and a lot of people in the campaign not thinking he was going to win. Right. You know, I was talking. And that to does Fe- influence the way you would think. Yeah. About it, right? I was, yeah. Talking, yeah. I was yeah. talking to Felix Sater about this like a month ago, mm-hmm. and I asked him like, "Did you think?" Are you going to win? He's like, no, come on. Like, are you kidding me? Right. right. <laughs> like, nobody did. Well, so, so, okay, here's another part, though, is that in those, Sater is, for most of the time, even though Cohen gets mad at him at a few yeah. points, is the one who is supposedly kind of making things happen on, on the Russian side. And it there were, there were a number of points there where it occurred to me, like, wow, it would be really helpful to know who he was working on, who he was working with, Sater on the Russian side, because mm-hmm. it sounds like he's working with people who are, you know, not just business people or at some level. I mean, the whole point of, of how the current Russian system works is no one's just a business person. If you're a big, big oligarch, you have to be sort of in the mix with the state. So there's no, there's no distinction. But that part was, um, you know, it certainly seemed to me that, that, uh, you know, Sater basically just, you know, kind of said everything. He was open, you know, he, talk, he obviously wasn't charged with anything. So, But, you know, there's a funny moment with that where he and Michael Cohen have a fight in like January 2016. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Cohen is like, fine, I'm going to set up this meeting with Putin myself. Right. And he goes and sends like an email to the wrong address. Right. It's like, it's just, I mean, it's like almost slapstick. In certain yeah. Areas. Well, there's that yeah. thing where he, yeah, he sends it. It's, it's, what is it, dot? What, what, it's instead, not a G, a J, or what instead of dot gov dot ru, it's dot gof dot ru. Right, right, right. Instead of a right, right. So before before we move on to kind of what happens next and what Congress's role is, Josh Marshall, I'm wondering if you sort of looking back in hindsight on the bar letter, have any just sort of reflections or thoughts about you know what impact that initial four page summary had. I mean, I'm just thinking we had the New York Times front page headline say, right, cloud is lifted over the, right. over Trump. Um, and, and then, you know, also looking at his press conference last Thursday, the, the morning that the report was released and just kind of the the wide gap between what the reporter was actually saying and what and how Barr characterized it. Well, I think the I think the the most basic thing is is just that it is now totally uncontestably obvious that Barr willfully misled everybody about what was in the report, about the judgments the reports had made. Um, there were there were even even very basic things like the one the one sentence about uh, you know did not establish was the final clause in this in this in this sentence that basically said, well, Russia totally interfered with the election. Trump thought it was awesome. And yet, so there, so it just, you yeah. know, willful, willful uh, uh, misleading. And to the point where misleading becomes effectively like lying, even though it's not, tech, you know, not technically lying. I would say this, though, that and, and, and most of the media just totally, you know, fell for it. Um, there's all sorts of ways we can criticize that. I think one thing it really shows, though, is that um, if you are operating within the constraints of the mainstream media and you do not and you and you have unequal access to the information, you're just limited in what you can do because we didn't really know what it said. We just knew it was like a very, a very tightly crafted statement right. meant to meant to say one thing. I would say this though that 
I mean, on the one hand, I think it has been a, that was a, I don't know, not a Pyrrhic victory exactly, but, you know, kind of like the mission accomplished thing Bush did right after the invasion of Iraq that kind of like kick, you know, killed it on day one, but like war very badly over, over, over time. Having said all that though, I don't think we can, uh, I don't think we can discount that with all of the stuff that has come out in the report over the last few days, you still have those sound bites um, of Barr saying there was no collusion, right. there was no obstruction. And those obviously run very aggressively uh, in conservative media and shape opinion. But even outside of conservative media, in just like local TV and local press and stuff like that, the the... The, the fullness of the report is is harder to capture. Yeah. Um, so especially if your job yeah. isn't to read it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah totally. And 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 uh, you know the reality is he is the uh, bar is still the one government official who has who has spoken to this, and that's what he said. And it is true in the sense of there's no obstruction prosecution. Right. You know that is accurate. You know he made the decision. You know, kind of on his own, but uh, it's true that there will be no pro- uh, uh, prosecution. It's also true that uh, uh, the investigators did not find enough evidence to find a criminal conspiracy. So I'm, I, I kind of go back and forth. On the one hand, uh, it's it's it seems like it backfired a lot. I think it backfired a lot in elite opinion. I think it backfired a lot. Just and people are actually paying attention, but I don't. I, I also just don't think we can discount the degree to which, if you're not paying that close close attention, um, those are still the sound bites. Um, and obviously, you have the most powerful person in the country running with those sound bites right. nonstop. Right. So it's hard for me to say it wasn't effective. So now it seems like the question among Democrats, especially those who are in Congress, but it's also obviously a big topic among those running for president, and there's some overlap between those two groups, uh, turns to impeachment, right? So we have Elizabeth Warren came out last week saying her statement was a little bit like mild, right? It was sort of she supports impeachment proceedings to begin against Trump. Kamala Harris, I think on CNN last night basically agreed. And then you have others who, like Nancy Pelosi, who runs the House, right, saying that it's not worth it. Um, you know, we can investigate Trump in other ways. Steny Hoyer, who's uh, the House Democratic leader, also kind of seems to be on that same page. Um, a lot of our readers seem like they've been writing in saying that even if even if impeachment isn't going to happen in the Senate, right? If the Senate won't convict, that it's still... Right, if the removal won't happen, that it's still worth making the argument, making the case. What do you think about that, Josh? I have always seen it as as just largely a distraction um, from from what is actually important, which is which is continuing to investigate and trying to unearth more information. One of the one of the key things about the Mueller report is that they had a very tight brief and it seems pretty clear from the report that they stayed pretty close to that there's a whole aspect of what they at least looked at which is this stuff having to do with the middle east that basically does not yeah. show up in the report at all right um and i take that that it 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 didn't go directly to the russia stuff but it it went to its own stuff mm-hmm. right so there's a lot of there's so much more investigating to be done um 
I do think at some level, some people for some people, it's actually like a, just a definitional issue. Fine, you impeach him. That doesn't do anything. That is an invitation to the Senate, the Republican Senate, to remove him from office. When you put it that way, you realize that it's not doing that much. Um, if you do that, you also get into this whole process of a, a trial and stuff like that, um, which to me is time you should spend investigating. Um, so I, I do feel like there is a... Um, there is a great desire for the psychic release of impeaching the president. I don't think it accomplishes that much given where we are, you know, what's actually happening right now. I think even people who say, well, you know, we don't have to impeach him, but we should start an inquiry. Well, the inquiry is really designed to be on a fairly short timetable um, to move towards, you know, to, to move towards articles of impeachment. So I, I just, to me... Um, to me, people are rightly very angry about the situation that the country's in, what the president has done, and they feel the need to do something. And impeachment is a very charged and powerful word, um, even though not everybody quite gets what it what it, it actually um, does. And and I think Democratic leaders in the House, uh, Hoyer especially. You know, they're trying to kind of tamp down expectations and everything, but they have taken this dismissive tone that I think is counterproductive for what they are actually trying to do, because it 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 has this it, it comes off as, um, you know, whatever. Right. You know, what's the point? Right. Um, there's an election, you know, get over it. I don't think that's really quite what they mean I, I, or what their, what their aim is. I think they don't think moving towards impeachment makes sense substantively or politically. And they're trying to kind of just knock it back and get it, you know, get the genie back in the bottle. But what they're doing in practice is sort of discrediting themselves with a big chunk of the electorate and uh, inviting this kind of intra-party acrimony that that people think they want to just let Trump off, right? And, and you know, so that's my right. that's my sense of it. Josh, what do you what do you? Well, first of all, what's your what's your take on that part of it? But what are you hearing in terms of your your following what the different committees are doing, what their next step is? How are they? They're the ones kind of on the ground dealing. What are they doing? Cummings Committee, Nadler's Committee. What's what's happening? Right. So, by far the two most aggressive committees. Yeah, I've been so far. Been those two committees. I mean, oversight and uh, judiciary. And there's a separate drama going on right now with Ways and Means and Trump's tax returns. But that's almost a separate issue because it's just its own kind of like bag of worms. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, Cummings is right now, you know, he let's remind listeners that he had Michael Cohen come testify at the end of February. Um, and 
based off of information that was like learned from that, uh, he's launched this big investigation into Trump's finances, looking specifically at this question of whether or not he, during the course of his business career, inflated or deflated his assets, either to like reduce his tax liability or to like make himself a more attractive bidder for whatever he was trying to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that investigation has resulted in him subpoenaing Mazars USA, it's Trump's accounting firm, and that's now devolved into this court battle where Trump hired a personal lawyer, this guy, William Consovoy, he's like a longtime conservative attorney, conservative movement attorney, like Federal Society, you know, died in the wool. Uh, and he's now leading kind of the charge, not only on that case, but also a number of other cases, including the tax returns, trying to argue that Trump, you know, I mean, basically throwing whatever they can throw at the wall to argue that Trump, you know, should not have to obey these requests. And, the, and also threatening the people who are receiving the requests, urging them not to respond. Mm-hmm. So that was part of actually what. The, right. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What What is, um, you know, the standard way this stuff evolves is uh, Congress makes a request. The administration can fight that request and and it's it is largely left to the courts to you know to 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 litigate now um in a lot of these cases the administration doesn't even seem to be fighting these requests sort of on the merits like they're not like you 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 can't just say no you there's there's specific categories of of uh, you know, executive privilege and stuff like this. But in a lot of cases, they just seem to be saying like, you know, Congress just has not any right to do this. Exactly. I mean, and that's some of the arguments that this guy, I mean, that you've seen put forth. I mean, even at this point in court filings right. saying that, yeah, Congress just does not have legitimate authority. I mean, this was an argument in the, in the lawsuit they filed against the Mazar subpoena yesterday. Right. Congress just does not really have standing to um, investigate, has standing to legislate. Right. But as long as there's no legislation contemplated by the investigation, there's no oversight authority. Yeah, I mean that is. I mean, there's a few problems with that. One, right. that's just not true. And B, <laughs> it, it the con- Congress has it. It does. It takes no cognizance of the fact that Congress is a co-equal branch of government, and in some ways of looking at the Constitution, is the first among equals branch of 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 government. So how does I, I guess. My sense is I think Democrats need to need to speed the pace, need to become more aggressive. But what? Um, what can they do now? What are and and what do you sense they are going to do in in this this kind of uh, massive resistance approach that Trump is taking? So I mean that's a big question. One thing we just saw, I mean literally right before we minutes before we started recording this podcast was uh, Chairman Cummings, you know, Chairman of the uh, Oversight Committee, moving to hold this guy Carl Klein in contempt, um, which is going to mean a referral to the uh, Justice Department. I mean. It's up. To, it's up to DOJ whether or not they're going to prosecute him. Right. That's not going to happen. But well, do we, uh, let's let's go through that because this is. I mean, one thing that I've been curious about is Congress does have some aspects of of abilities to actually f- compel people, and um, I mean. Technically, I think they can actually, like the sergeant of arms in some case, can take people into custody even. Now, they can make these referrals. Now, I'm curious. We kind of say, like, well, it's it's the Trump Justice Department. But that I, I'm that doesn't seem quite as straightforward that they can just say, ah, no, sorry. Do we what, what, what do we sense is going on there? Well, or could go on there? A lot of this, I mean, I think a lot of th- a lot of this stuff is going to get tied up in the courts. There's going to be a question of how much research. I mean, does, does does the Trump administration want to stonewall on every single request? Do they want to have every single request evolve into a court battle, mm-hmm. or do they want to be a bit more strategic about it? 
and start responding to some of them in certain ways, you know, delaying as much as they can, which mm-hmm. other, frankly, other administrations do. Right. Um, you know, there's, so I was talking to one person who helped write, helped write some of the legislation on this. Uh, I think they reformed it at some point in the seventies. And he was saying that when Reagan first took power, you know, maybe you know more of the background on this, you know, for the first year or two, he was also just completely stonewalling the mm-hmm. investigations. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point they kind of realized like, look, this is just going to be a lot more productive if we at least cooperate in a minimal way. And just have less lawsuits in our hands to right. all the time. Well, yeah. I think the the other part too is is that if you are if you are cooperating where you can right. and and going to court in cases where you think you at least have some legitimate argument that you know that you can make, that also both politically and I think legally puts you in a position to say we're not saying Congress has no oversight rights here. Right. We're saying we're, the specific request. We're saying much, that we have yeah. certain institutional um, equities that we're trying to protect. And at least in the current, in the, um, in the administration's current posture, they seem to be saying, and, and to be willing to quite openly say, we don't think you have any rights. Right. That, that basically it can, because you have these certain of these cases and the tax cases, the tax return cases is, is, is I think a pretty good um, instance of this where the law is just dispositive. It says you will just turn them over. It doesn't, right. you know, you know, Steve Mnuchin gave some interesting comments on this last week where he said, I mean, I think he told Reuters explicitly, like, look, we saw what happened to president, I mean, to president Nixon back in the seventies and we just don't want that to happen again. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you, you can't phrase it clearer than that, right? No, like, and 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 uh, and that's kind of the that that's kind of the point. In a sense, that's all they have because the law is very dispositive. It doesn't. It you know, they they really have no argument, and I do think that gets you to, frankly, I think this posture is a an impeachable offense in itself because the you're operating outside of the the sort of the constitutional structure if you're just saying like we're not doing any of the oversight stuff which is which is kind of what they're doing they're saying they're not letting anybody testify they're not agreeing to really any document requests um even the white house is sort of doing a pr push right hogan gidley was on Fox News this morning saying, you know, we went over this. Uh, this is about Trump's tax returns. We went over this in 2016. Everyone wanted to see them. You know, he's under audit. You can't release him. He won. It's over, basically. Yeah. I mean, again, these are not legal arguments. They're, they, they, you know, so I, I don't. Um, well, here, one, one last one last question I have before we before we finish up. One issue is. I, th- I think it is still assumed, although things are moving pretty quickly on this front that they that uh, Congress is probably is likely to get a fairer hearing a more sympathetic hearing in some of the lower courts than at the Supreme Court on the other hand they have a great interest and the administration has the opposite interest of let's get this resolved let's just escalate this right to get a final answer from the Supreme Court um, what is how much can they because you know with the supreme court i think congress can say basically hey we have a strong interest we have a strong interest in this not taking two or three years you're the final authority you take it and you give us a decision what sort of thinking is there along that front and how much do they think the supreme court will be you know uh, amenable to that regardless of what the final you know decision is i think it's difficult to imagine 
them stonewalling on like 100 requests than 100 separate cases ending up in the Supreme Court on this one issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they can they can they can try to expedite these cases to the Supreme Court. They can file for writ of mandamus, but or not for 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 certiorari. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to the Supreme Court to like whether or not they're going to take it. You know, so here's one thing that happened. Uh, this isn't Congress, but it's the DC the, the Maryland DC Attorney General. They filed they sued Trump for violating the allegedly violating the emoluments clause. Uh, last year, and that course made it to the appellate level a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it was the appellate court. I think it was the Second Circuit, if I'm correct. And uh, they uh, did not do very well. At least the, the attorney general did not. Um, and what was the what was the nature of the decision? It was they haven't. What happened was is they. I mean, basically, so it was judged by a panel of appellate judges, right? And the people they picked were all either I think Trump appointees or uh, George Bush appointees. And it like at least the decision hasn't come down yet. But from judging from the the remarks they made at argument, uh, they all were incredibly skeptical. So it'll be an interesting test to see what happens because we are pretty sure that after that this decision you know comes down probably negatively for the emolument side, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to appeal to the Supreme Court, and we'll see how they I mean how they respond. I think people are looking to that case as kind of a the first bellwether, test. Like, yeah, like a bellwether mm-hmm. for what's going to come later. Well, I'm curious too is that I would think from a from a uh, federal perspective, Congress has a lot more standing than state attorney generals have to to get into that question. Um, and I don't know how, uh, I don't know whether a, whether a decision from the Supreme Court would speak to that distinction. Would, you know, would they make a kind of a blanket judgment or just make a judgment that's, that, that rests partially on, you know, this isn't really in your business. You're a state attorney general. It doesn't have anything to do with you. And you know, Newt Gingrich said this in like October or November. Do you remember this quote where he was? He said in CNN they were talking about the tax return request, and he said, you know, we'll see how how valuable the fight over Brett Kavanaugh was, right? Um, once the tax return request makes it to the Supreme Court, <laughs> right? Right. Well, that uh, there you go. All right. So, uh, well, I think we've gotten through uh, hashed out some of the key, yes, some of the key stuff. Um, I guess uh, we got to talk about. We have to remind everybody about uh, Grady's Cold Brew uh, Iced Coffee. Remember, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. Ready to give it a squirrel? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. And remember, sign up and become a uh, TPM Prime member. Uh, uh, Subscribe to... TPM, basically. Support what we do. Yeah, support what we do. Uh, It really is a key part of keeping this podcast on the air. Uh, And you can get a special deal, 20% off. Go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. That's talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal for 20% off a TPM Prime membership. All right. I guess we settled all the Mueller report stuff. (laughs) See you guys next week. All right. Talk to you next week.